everybody. Uh, before we begin, I want to invite up John uh, for a, a quick announcement, and so, certainly something you don't want to you don't want to miss. So, John. Thanks, Francis. Good morning, church. Uh, I have an announcement for you all. I want to direct your attention to an insert in your bulletin if you don't have this. Uh, this is the first of its kind. The Epic Ministry, the Youth Ministry, is putting on something called the Epic Extravaganza. That's what we're running with. Essentially what it is, is it is a fundraiser um, for our youth who are wanting to go to summer camp. And so that's what it is in a nutshell. The way that it's going to be presented is uh, it's an evening of entertainment, so you're all invited, every single one of you. And if you want to bring friends, you're you're, uh, more than welcome to do so. There is no cost to attend, so it's absolutely free to attend. Even, honestly, if you don't donate, um, you can just come and enjoy the talents of our students. Uh, it's students from EPIC, as well as a few members from uh, the AIM ministry, the young uh, college and young adult ministry. And what we'll be doing is just a variety of, of different things of entertainment, from uh, worship <laughs> songs, instrumentals. There will be little short films, um, a cooking demonstration uh, as well, and, and, and uh, other couple of surprise acts that I'll, I'll just leave to the imagination that you'll have to come and find out. So it's this Friday here in this very room from 7 to 9 in the evening. Um, and if you are maybe interested in supporting the ministry, but possibly are, you know, maybe you're not able to attend, there is a QR code that will also be there in abundance on Friday. But if you're like, you know what, I can't make it, but I'd love to support, there is a QR code on that insert that you can uh, do, and that goes straight to uh, the Venmo. So again, would, would love your support in that way. And again, even if you uh, you know have nothing to give in terms of financially, that's completely fine. We welcome you to come and see what our students have worked very hard to put together. Um, it'll be a great night of fun and uh, just togetherness this Friday. So look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. And he said cooking demonstration. <laughs> We've had plenty of, of different things. I don't know quite a cooking demonstration. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, this Friday, I encourage you all, uh, it's shaping up to be a great time uh, to be together. Uh, one other thing before we jump in, I just want to congratulate the Kennedy family, Charlotte Kathleen Kennedy. It's an awesome name, by the way. Charlotte Kathleen, uh, born on the 21st, 7 pounds, 9 ounces, 19 inches long. So mommy and baby, I believe, are, are doing well. Uh, Colin, just, you know, hanging out along for the ride. But uh, I, we got to see him via FaceTime, and uh, he had that face on him of the, whoa. <laughs> so it's good. it's good to see them. Hopefully uh, we get to meet, meet baby soon. Let's pray. Lord, what a heart-stirring time to sing of your praises. And I pray, God, that as we have read your word, as we've prayed, as we've sung, may our hearts have been stirred, God, ready, made ready to receive your word. Lord, such is the highlight of the service, the proclamation of your word, not by man, but what it is that you have to say to us. And so be with us, God. Give us minds to be able to comprehend your word. Give us ears to be able to hear it. 
Oh, and give us hearts to be able to be transformed and renewed in how we act, how we live, how we think. Oh, we need your help for this, God. In and of ourselves, we are completely powerless. Oh, so be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Titus, God's glorious design for his church. This is God's handbook for a healthy church. And now chapter 2, turn there. Chapter 2, and I pray that as we've preached through Titus thus far, it's been an encouragement to your soul on what it is God would have for his church. And so chapter 2 now turns its focus on you, the members of the church. You know, so from this point forward, chapter 2 and the remainder of chapter 3, really the remainder of the book of Titus, we enter into the highly and extremely practical portion of the letter. Admonitions, commands, injunctions on how sound doctrine is to manifest in the lives of the believers within the church. So this text, dear church, speaks to all of us, not by implication, but directly. Here in our passage, the first ten verses of chapter 2, Paul groups believers within the church. And undoubtedly, everyone here will fit into one of these groups. Such groups are older men, Older women, younger men, younger women, and bond slaves. In other words, modern day employees. The title of the sermon is Sound Doctrine That Leads to Sound Living. We'll have three points. First, what we are to speak. Second, how we are to live. And lastly, why it matters. What we are to speak, how we are to live, and why it matters. Our goal this morning is this, that the lives we live within the church community be glorifying to the Lord and magnifies Him to our outside community. So turn with me again, if you're not already there, Titus chapter 2, and read along with me verses 1 through 10. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Our first point this morning 
what we are to speak. What we are to speak. Verse 1, but as for you, but as for you, here Paul begins immediately by contrasting. So what is he contrasting? The false teachers whom we were just speaking of at the end of verse 1. Verse 10 through 16. It says, you, Titus, be different. Be different from those rebellious, empty talking, deceiving, men for sordid gain, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, teaching dirty doctrine with defiled consciences. Those men who say they're Christian, but by their detestable, disobedient deeds deny him, men whom we have examined, and after careful examination using the standards of Scripture, these men have been rendered useless, worthless. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The word speak there is not the word for preach. It's not the word for teach insofar as in a formal setting like a classroom or a Sunday school. No, the word speak there means ordinary conversation. Encouraged by speaking, not only sound doctrine, but speaking and encouraging in regards to sound living and what it looks like. Speak is in the present tense. It means this, Titus, by implication, elders, you are to continually do this. Don't just give the church doctrine. Show them how to live it out. Show them how to live it out. Make sound doctrine visible. And you are to speak, Titus, the things which are fitting. In other words, what is appropriate? What corresponds to sound doctrine? And what's unfortunate is the world has so much has crept into the church that such a life fitting for sound doctrine is hardly to be noticed. Hardly to be noticed. All over the scripture, what is emphasized and what is normative is that truth, behavior, always linked Never divorced. The Greek word for sound there is where we get our English word for hygiene. Something that's clean, orderly, healthy. And, you know, Paul uses a form of this word nine times in the pastoral epistles. Five of those times, more than half, in Titus. And every time it's used, it's always in relation to a personal righteousness. Oh, I believe we need to be reminded, dear church, of what sound doctrine is is for some here this morning this may be the very first time you'd ever heard the good news it's the truth that god is holy and we are not it's the truth that we were made for his glory and his worship and rather than worship him and prioritize him and love him we loved ourselves wanted to do it our own way wanted to worship the things of this world we were we were sinners we were we were none of us were righteous no not one. Oh, but in the Backdrop of that darkness, oh, but God so loved that he sent his only son. That whoever so believes in him will not perish, but be granted life eternal. Those whom God chose, those whom God has elected, whom he granted the gift of faith to believe in Christ. They were regenerated. They were given life. Their hearts were transformed. They're given eyes to see now. They're able to take in the beauty of Christ that was always there. It's just it was marred by sin. We couldn't see it. And those whom he saved have now a greater thirst for the pure milk of the word and by it now grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, grow into more and more likeness of him. And they're more and more obedient and they're more and more loving. And as both of those grow, these believers in Christ are now connected to Christ's church. And his church with 
which Christ purchased with his own blood, this church that Christ nourishes and protects and washes and presents holy and blameless, this church thrives and is healthy, becomes attractive to a watching world that has no hope. And what makes it attractive, what makes its evangelism effective are those within the church living lives of holiness. This is sound doctrine. So you, Titus, speak the things so that the church may know how to practically live out their faith. And so this is what we are to speak. Second, and we'll spend the bulk of our time, this is how we are to live. Paul here addresses each group. He addresses every one of these groups based on age and gender with the exception of bond slaves, with the exception of of employees. And Paul, though not a biologist, is certainly confident in his ability to distinguish men and women and address them individually. So Paul here first addresses older men. Older men, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in Perseverance, you know, right now, today, our population is the oldest it's ever been. Life expectancy is at an all-time high with an average lifespan of about 80. With there being less and less children being born and more and more people living longer, our population, for the very first time, of those greater than 65 are more in population than those under You know, what's unfortunate, though, is in a general sense, those older are not respected. Highly mistreated are the butt of many jokes, oftentimes cast aside, abandoned, not prioritized, often overlooked, many times forgotten. You know, we all know getting old is not characterized in a positive way. Getting old certainly has its physical challenges. You know, simply, see, uh, simply, simply sleeping can be the cause of, of, uh, of injury. No more need for an alarm clock. You just naturally wake up early. Vision begins to be a challenge. The need for glasses now a little bit more evident. You start losing hearing. Hair begins to come off the top and begins to grow out your ears. When you fall or trip, people don't laugh anymore. They actually rush to your aid because they fear maybe you broke something. On and on and on. The picture of getting old makes it so that why would anyone look forward to it? Why, why would we want to look forward to it? Not so with Scripture. For the way Paul describes getting older is something not only you look forward to, but it's a time of increased activity. Fruitfulness, time for service, not quitting. Getting old is not when we hang them up, collect seashells and travel the world. And now I can do all the things I couldn't do. Oh, dear church, if we are gripped by sound doctrine, this will lead those who are older to view their years and lives in a very specific God glorifying way. And so older men, in other words, an aged man. This term Paul uses of himself in Philemon 
You'll find Zechariah is also described by this term in Luke chapter 1. In extra-biblical writings, if you will, Philo quotes Hippocrates as he described the seven stages of life. And stage six, this term is used to describe stage six. And in stage six, we're men over the age of 50. Much more, though, I think, than simply the age, I believe what this text is really speaking of are mature men who've lived life. And their years of life walking with Christ has manifested in first being temperate. Note that these are what older men are to be, not what they will be. So it assumes this is how you are. This is how you are. You are first to be temperate, which also means sober. Being temperate means to have clarity of mind, to be able able to think uh, think through the issues of life. Uh, A temperate man lives in such a way that they aren't extravagant. They don't overindulge. They would rather pursue what is holy, what is beneficial, what's fruitful, what is worthy to pursue, predominantly that of Christ. You know, this attitude is indicative of the older man's lifestyle. Why? Because they've lived long enough to be able to testify that sin is exactly what Hebrews 11 says it is. Simply a passing pleasure that ought not to be pursued. The Greek word here was initially used to describe a drink that was unmixed with wine. So if we were to describe an older man as a cup of hot water, these older men no longer steep the world's tea bags in there. He is disciplined in his finances, with his time, with his possessions. The older man looks the part. They more or less put away tight-fitting t-shirts that they used to wear and more opt for comfortable aloha shirts. You are next to be dignified, worthy of respect. The older man lives in such a way as to garner respect. The older man lives an honorable life. You know, their character evokes a special reverence, and this word doesn't really even associate with age. Because the culture I grew up in, just by the fact that someone is older, you're to respect them. They could be living lives not worthy of respect. They could be living lives just like the Cretans were living. But just because they're older, they are to be respected, not here. No, the older man's life, their behavior, their deeds, there are those to be looked to, trusted. The dignified man doesn't walk around with their chest puffed out or their, their chin held high. No, the dignified man, they've lived long enough to see and feel and experience the consequences of sin. And therefore, they live lives in an appropriately serious way. You know, they see what happens in the news. They see the mass shootings, sickness. You know, they're they're well aware of evil assembly bills being considered as law. Oh, and by experience, they can affirm, you know, life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. There's a seriousness to the older man. And this doesn't mean that the older man can't joke, smile, have fun. You know, we know this isn't true with some of the older men we have here. But here's what it means. It means that they've lived long enough to see people stricken with cancer. It means they've lived long enough to see homes broken apart. It means they've sat across people writhing in pain with tears streaming down their face. 
They've attended many funerals, and they've lived long enough that immorality, vulgarity, nonsensical, superficial things, it's just not funny. It's just not funny. You know, the dignified man knows the value of time. These, these men have, <laughs> have lived long enough to see a great deal come and go. They, they, they were around when the Floby haircutting system was, was all the rage. They, they were around when the Sony Walkman was cool. And they've seen today's latest gadget. And they know there'll be something else. Something else that'll come. All the while, there's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. All these utopian, great, the next great idea is going to rise and fall. I've dignified man, I've seen it. I've seen it all. Older men are next to be sensible. In other words, sober-minded. To be self-controlled. This characteristic, as one pastor puts it, is the vein that runs through this passage because you will find this also indicative of all the other people groups that we will talk about. This is a combination word. Sozo means saved and frame, which means mind. To be sensible is to act like someone with a saved mind. So if your mind, Romans 12, has been transformed and renewed, then you act that way. Older men are to have a level of discernment that only comes by walking with the Lord for many years. They, they think through things in wise ways. They're not rash. Lastly, For older men, we are given a triad to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Sound in faith is an older man who know the scriptures. They they know that Christ is fully sufficient. Why this confidence for the older man? Because surely their faith has been tested. They've gone through fire. Older men have the scars to prove it. And Christ has remained faithful to them. You know, they no longer question his goodness, not like when they were younger. They no longer lose confidence in his grace. They no longer doubt his faithfulness. No, an older man would be able to say there's nothing better than serving Jesus because he's worth it. Joshua 23:14. And interesting here, Joshua in his old age, in his farewell address says this, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Isn't that awesome? Older man Joshua says, God does not fail. Sound in love, the word agape, we know that word, don't we? type of love that's sacrificial, that's unconditional. This is the type of love that God shows. This is a love towards God, a love towards God's people, and a love towards those who don't know God. The love by bearing one another's burdens and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. Their love, they've learned how to love even when it's not deserved and they continue to love even when it is rejected. The older man wastes no time. The older man will cut it to you straight. Just like John in his older years, you can read in 1 John, and yes, he is very direct because he doesn't want to waste any more time. But in no way do we walk away from reading John's epistles and think once, oh, he's unloving. We don't think that, quite the opposite. It's every bit the type of love described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Lastly, the older man is to embody perseverance. 
These men don't quit. They don't fold under pressure. The word here literally means remaining under. Remaining under trials and afflictions in a way that honors God. And how have these older men have learned it? Because they've read and have lived James 1, 2. That they've encountered various trials. And they know that the testing of their faith has produced this endurance. Older men, they've been laid off. They've been hurt. They've been left out. They've been ridiculed. They've been taken advantage of. They've dealt with much sin, either directed towards them or as a result of their own doing. They've had relationship problems and quarrels and vices and on and on and on. And through it all, God has produced endurance. These men don't quit. Oh, God has a good design. He knows what He is doing and He knows in order to have a healthy church, that is our context, if you remember We need to have older men, healthy, mature, older men. And if you're an older man here this morning, as I've kind of briefly talked through this list, you're sitting there thinking, man, that ain't me. That's not me at all. I want to say for you older man, there's hope for you. Because Philippians 3.13, Paul says, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So make today when you said enough is enough. By God's grace, I want to be like this. God, help me. And maybe it's because you don't even know who Jesus is. Maybe that's why you're not like this. You've yet to experience His transformative power and oh dear friend today is the day of salvation christ can christ can free you from the bondage of this world so you no longer live like it but live in such a way as is fitting for sound doctrine so older men this is how you are to live next group of people verse three older women older women means an aged woman an adult female advanced in years and so Paul, I think wisely, doesn't specify the age of a woman that would, have, would qualify as older. Now, not to be rude and put a number on it, I was reminded of a funny interaction whereby a young man asked an older woman, how old are you? How old are you? Older woman responds, don't be rude. Don't, don't be rude, it's none of your business. Young man mutters under his breath, saying, well, from the looks of it, you've been in business for quite some time. But regardless of age, I believe what's evident here with the older woman is that they've been married for quite some time. They've raised children through various stages of life. The older woman through life may have been widowed, may have been divorced or otherwise single, Regardless of age, the situation, the older woman has walked with God for quite some time. Such women, dear church, deserves much reverence in the life of the body. Older women, likewise, says there, in other words, in the same manner as what we just explained regarding the older men, you are to be first reverent in your behavior. The word reverent there is only used here. 
and describes one who's fitting for the temple. The word has a root of being being priest-like. And it came to mean this, that older women are to be godly examples of holiness. Godly examples of holiness. The verb there for behavior means deportment, which also references dress and appearance. Simply put, the older woman is to act the part, talk the part, look the part, even dress the part. No longer do older women dress when they were young. Where they shop now is indicative of their age. The older woman is modest, dresses in such a way as to not distract others, predominantly that of younger men. The older women is not to be like this world. The older women is supposed to be distinct from this world. The older women is to be sanctified from this world and is devoted to the service of Christ. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Second, older women are not to be malicious gossips. Older women refuse to listen. They don't propagate slander. They don't stand for demeaning words about others. Paul here isn't simply meeting idle chatter. No, it's much worse. The word malicious gossips is the word diabolos, which means slanderer or false accuser. And this word is used 34 times in the New Testament as a title for Satan. Diabolos is two words, dia and balo, which means through, throw. In such pictures, what the devil does, the devil throws things between people. For example, he threw lies to Eve and created this schism between God and man, which in turn resulted almost immediately to marital strife. The devil's game plan to wreak havoc in relationships by throwing things between And this is exactly the effect of malicious gossip. So in a sense, when older women take part in this act, they are furthering the devil's work. Wise aged women don't listen to gossip. They don't propagate it. They are not malicious gossips. Next, older women are not enslaved to much wine. Now this phrase refers to drunkenness. To be enslaved means to be controlled by it. Remember our context. What's generally descriptive of Crete, they're lazy gluttons. Right? There's no controlling their consumption. Some extra-biblical writings actually list heavy drinking as a virtue in Crete. That's a virtue. So this problem was all obviously severe enough that Paul had to address it. And we can presume that women more or less use alcohol as a means for escape as a way to numb the effects of a fallen world. And, you know, sounds pretty familiar to today, doesn't it? You know, not much has changed. And for men, don't think this is an admonition or just an injunction related to the women only. No, Paul addresses you too. And even makes this as a qualification for leaders in their appointment and every list that he gives. So taken together, not being malicious gossips and not being enslaved to much wine, 
One commentator observes that this has elements of using your time wisely. You may think, what does this have to do with using time wisely? So stay with me here. We can presume that an older woman may have have a little more time on her hands, generally speaking. Why? Because maybe the children are grown up. Maybe they're out of the house now and responsibilities have shifted to where the demands on time is maybe not as prominent as it was before. And the temptation is now to use the extra time to engage in these activities. And so while the first two are don't do's, now we turn positive. We turn positive. Do this. Older women, back to our text, are to teach what is good. Teaching what is holy and godly. This doesn't refer to an official teaching position insofar as what's prohibited in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But however, this implies a one-on-one encouragement. Coming alongside, it pictures a an older woman who is experienced in life, in marriage, in childbearing, in child, uh, child rearing, experienced working outside the home, experienced in both home and public schooling her kids, taking the younger women under their care, helping them. This is discipleship. Older women sense the proactiveness of this charge and older women are to take ownership of this You are to initiate this to teach the younger women this holiness, godliness. This is the good life. This is the good life. Not all this trash we see on social media depicting what the good life is and not all this trash that we can read of in romance novels and not all this trash we see on these dumb shows about love and commitment and 90 day fiance and and ultimatum and all this stuff. That's not good. This, this is the good life. Sound doctrine that leads to sound living. This is good. And we live in a culture obsessed with staying young. Obsessed with staying young. Striving for the fountain of youth. Where is it? I can't find it. I'm like, keep looking for it. Feel young. Look young. You know, it's not all bad. You know, I've begun to... Uh, get some years on me now and uh gray hairs are a little bit more prominent now you know so are wrinkles <laughs> on my face so much so my, my wife even has me putting on this cream on my face now it's, it's probably it's it's probably going to be a, a a stewardship issue because this cream is is pricey but i don't know if it's working it's not all bad but you know before we transition to address those who are younger i, I want to say this to the older man and to the older woman. You know, the Christian life is not something that we age out of. No, the Christian life is something we age and grow deeper into. Yeah, maybe we can't do the physical things we used to. Maybe now you you actually have to warm up now and stretch. Didn't have to do that before. Oh, but what God has brought you through and what's in here and what's in here, no, that needs to be lived out to the coming generation. As I studied this, my heart was stirred because Paul in this passage charged Titus, Titus, encourage and admonish the older men. Titus, encourage and admonish the older women. 
Titus, encourage and admonish the younger men. Titus, encourage and admonish the, the employees, the bond slaves. Oh, but Paul didn't charge Titus to encourage and admonish the young women. So why is that? Oh, dear church, do you see how vital older women are to the local church? Oh, this is God's glorious design. And there's a very specific role that they, older women, fill that no one else in the church does. Not the elder, not the pastor. Oh, the older women, verse 4, so that they, they, older women, may encourage the young women. Not you, Titus. Yes, encourage the church and be faithful to preach and teach what accords with sound doctrine. But when it comes to practical living, living out that sound doctrine, when it comes to young women, that's for the older women. The older women do that. Oh, and this church believed this even before I began to understand it. You know, when this church planted, it was planted with a very specific desire for women's ministry. I remember those meetings way back when. We had thoughts of many kinds of ministries. Youth ministry, college ministry, etc. And in time, by God's grace, those came as the need arose. But the conviction of this church, even from the very beginning, we need a women's ministry. Why? Because for a church to be healthy, older women are to teach the young women. So young women, your turn. Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. You know, I fully realize that some of you young women here are not married. So you may immediately be tempted to think, what does this have to do with me? Oh, I trust you see how important this is for you because one day, if God so wills, you will be married. And you may think, really? The first thing out the gate for me, for a young woman, love their husbands. You may think, really? That's, that's, that's the first one? Well, remember, Greco-Roman culture back in the first century, you know, it was normal, arranged marriages. Arranged marriages, you know, so different than our Western way of thinking where you are swept off your feet during the dating or courtship uh, times and then you fall in love and then you get married. It was different then. So the encouragement here more addresses the aspect of loving your husband insofar as you're committed to him. You're committed to him. You prefer him. Not because he's worthy, but because Christ is worthy. So young women are to love their children with the same sacrificial, preferential love. You are to love your children, to love them in every way, be it in time, practical, physical, moral, spiritual, teaching them the gospel, praying that they come to saving faith in Christ. Both of these seem very basic, don't they? They seem very basic, very easy to understand. However, dear church, this is what is consistently attacked by our culture. This the role of women attacked. The committed marriage and the importance of it attacked. Husbands and kids are made to feel like, oh, they're just roadblocks for young women to fully unleash her potential. Oh, if I wasn't married to him, or if I didn't have to take care of these kids, I can be doing X, Y, Z. You know, I thought back just in, in the years, my professional years, if you will, the, 
the years I've been working both in the private sector and even in the military, and I realized something. 95% of my bosses have been female in my, in my career. And then I thought back, I, I thought back, and, and some of them were, were great, awesome, some of them not, not so much, but nonetheless, I thought back to the 95% of females who were my direct boss. And every single one of them, at some point of me working for them, said this statement to me. Man, if I didn't have kids, I'd be so rich right now. They would say that. And some of them may be joking. I'm not, I'm not arguing the facts of that. That may factually be true. But it was said in such a way as these kids are in my way. They're in my way. I'd rather spend my money somewhere else. Not on them. Oh, and older women, they've thought through the same thoughts. They've dreamt the same dreams. They've struggled through the same temptations. They can come alongside you, young women, young ladies, to show you that's not the way. The good life, it's, it's this way. The good life, love your husband. Love your children. That is an order. And that is in order as well. Young ladies, you are to be sensible you are to be pure, which refers to moral purity. And in this context, the sexual purity and marital faithfulness. This also has the idea of being discreet, modest. It refers to having a healthy sense of shame at doing anything, saying anything, dressing in any way that would cause another man to lust. You are to be workers at home. Talk about something <laughs> that, that, that modern sensibilities and modern ears don't like hearing that. Be workers at home. Something not viewed in high esteem. Actually, being a homemaker is viewed as subjugation. Characterized as some kind of torment. Viewed as demeaning. Viewed by radical feminism as somehow being lowered in value. Working, working at home, being a homemaker... That's the lesser life. Pushed, rather, to be career women. And to the workforce, you know, a sound understanding of being workers at home is to be preoccupied with the affairs of the home, to be preoccupied and devoted to the duties of the home. The home is the primary sphere, the focus. The home, understand me, yes, it can include the physical, actual place you live, but more so it's what's inside that home, the affairs of it, the people that live in it. You know, it's worth addressing something you may be wondering. Does this say or imply a woman can't work outside of the home? What about work a job from home? No, it doesn't. I doubt Paul had in mind career women or moms in a secular workplace when he wrote this. The emphasis, though, is clear. The home is to be the woman's primary focus. And there are numerous situations which we, in this setting, don't necessarily have time to discuss that I know, I know, naturally present tensions such as the desire to stay at home and the desire to work outside of the home and the various reasons and seasons of life that the Lord allows for us to go through. Hope, if, not, if nothing else, you can sense how much wisdom and discernment is needed here. John MacArthur says this, quote, Young Christian wives must take special care to be sensible in consultation with their husbands, they must use good judgment in deciding how much time can justifiably and wisely 
be spent in outside activities from the home when they have a genuine desire to obey and honor the Lord and to consistently seek guidance from his word and in prayer, they can be assured that he will provide the necessary wisdom and resolution, end quote. You know, remember in chapter one, false teachers were upsetting whole families. They were turning homes upside down. They were flipping them over. So can you imagine why Paul, and maybe help think through why Paul would be so stern in reminding young women about the order of the home. Because that's what's being attacked back in first one. In chapter one, I should say. You are to be workers at home. You are to be kind. You know, it's interesting that being kind comes immediately after being workers at home. (laughs) Can you imagine, maybe you don't have to, Caring for children all day, dealing with disobedience, trying to love your husband who could be lazy, not helping out around the house, and the stage is set. The last thing you want to be is kind. You are to be kind. And lastly, young lady, you are to be subject to your own husband. To be subject here means to arrange oneself in an orderly manner. It means literally to set something in place up under something else. And in this context, refers to the wife placing herself up under her husband and his authority. You know, to be subject implies a willingness, right? A willingness on the part of the one placing themselves under, not the one in authority demanding it. There's a willingness to subject oneself. You know, this doesn't regard the wife as lesser than her husband. What this talks about are two people who are equal in the eyes of God and the wife makes a choice to place herself under another equal. For what? So that there can be order. There can be function in the home, in the family. And this is God's glorious design for the home. And as God's glorious design for the home is followed, it would allow for healthy homes. Then families will be healthy And therefore, the church will be healthy. To the young ladies, you're being attacked. You are being attacked. What you hear day in and day out from our culture is quite the opposite of what you just heard. Oh, and I beg of you, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Be sensible. These are lies from the devil himself and it's his way of creeping into homes to disrupt order. To disrupt God's glorious design and it's not going to be easy, which is why God has placed older women in the church for this reason. To encourage you. To train you because it doesn't come naturally. Seek out older women. They've been through it. You know, while preparing this, I asked some older women individually this question. What is more real? What is more evident to you today in your walk with Christ as compared to when you were younger? I just asked that. I I didn't really know what I would get. Oh, man, my heart was stirred. Listening to these women tell me things like this. Here's what I know. Here's what's more real to me today, that God is near. 
God is near. He's never far away. I know that. Here's another one. Oh, I've had some very lonely days, but here's what I know today better than I did when I was younger. He is with me. He is with me. Here's another one. I've had some very, very hard, rough days, but here's what I know today better than when I was younger is that His mercies are new every morning. All of them, like a chorus, said this, He is faithful. Faithful. Throughout all the trials and throughout all of the stages of of childbearing and childrearing, throughout loving my husband, throughout working at home, throughout working outside the home, through being kind, and on and on and on, He is faithful. Oh, and these are who is available to you, young ladies. Go to them. They'll tell you. They'll help you. Verse 6, to the young men, your turn. You only got one thing. (laughs) Be sensible to be self-controlled. The women are like, man, how I got 15 things and young men got like one thing. Why is that? Probably because these are the young men y'all are going to (laughs) marry. But all jokes aside, though it states one thing, this one thing is huge. This one thing is huge. Of all the groups that I previously mentioned, all of them are called to be this way, to be sensible. And additionally, verse 6 begins with likewise, meaning in the same manner as everything else that we just said previously. The reality, though, Paul was very intentional in listing just this one. And that's because for a young man, your natural tendencies are to be out of control out of control. Paul exhorted Timothy, flee from youthful lusts, rather pursue righteousness. So as the great modern sociologist, Justin Bieber once said, young bucks think there's always tomorrow. Of course, he's 28. So he must be talking about them 27-year-olds, those 26-year-old young bucks. You know, I think back to, to a season of life for me, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I was out of control, wild. And I didn't manifest in like partying or anything like that. No, it manifested in the decisions I made about work, about church, priorities which were not in order. Older men trying to urge me. Older men trying to come alongside me. Be sensible. Be sensible. And I would not listen. Why? Because I'm a man. I can figure this out. Right? I know better. And one older man said, hey, check it out, man. I need you to read Proverbs 12.1. I'm like, whatever. I'll read Proverbs 12.1. And Proverbs 12.1 says, he who hates reproof is stupid. And then I thought, man, the Bible says, the Bible said stupid. I didn't know that. An older man said, yeah, that's you. That's you, bro. You're being stupid. Oh, and having been given the opportunity to come alongside many young men. I, here's what I found. Is many young men don't yet have a healthy view of sin. You know what I mean? You know, because when you're young, you can often make decisions, rash ones. Rash decisions. Because it only affects you. Only affects you. You don't like this job? You quit the job. 
only affects you. Or be caught up in some secret sin, some immorality, and, and, and there's no immediate consequence for it yet. Therefore, sins can linger in the mind, in the thoughts, in the heart. And young men are often impatient. They're impulsive. They're ambitious, sometimes arrogant, and are like this in many spheres of life. And in verse 7, now Paul talking directly to Titus, commanding him, in all things, Titus, show yourself. Don't just teach sound doctrine, Titus. Show how to live it out. Titus himself, being a younger man, is to be an example to these young men. Not in some things, but in all things. All things means just that. All things. Young men, I want you to see how I manage my finances, how I manage my time, how I work through work, things of work and career, all these things, how I, how I prioritize the home, how do I lead the home. I want to see, I want you to see how I fail in these things too. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, purity and doctrine, dignified, like how the older man is to be, and sound in speech, verse 8, which is beyond Reproach, even how you talk. Right? Even how you converse with people, be an example. Don't be, don't be these, like these cool, hip, mainstream pastors who curse and tell crude jokes and they gossip, they're harsh. But you know, when you, when you listen to them, they sound just like something. Just like the world. It sounds just like the world. Oh, even in your speech, be distinct. Because the reality of the gospel has so permeated your heart and let that transform your mind. You don't even talk the way you used to talk anymore. Our final group, not to be broken out by age or gender, they are bond slaves who are urged, verse 9, to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, You know, in the Greco-Roman culture, slaves were roughly a third of the workforce. You know, slaves were considered property. They were owned by a master. A slave became one either because in war their side lost and therefore they were taken on as slaves. A slave sometimes chose to be one because they had debt. So in order to pay off that debt, they chose to be a slave. Most slaves, though, they were born into it because their parents were slaves A little bit different, though, than how we think through slavery and the the transatlantic slave trade. A little bit different because these slaves, it wasn't race-specific. These slaves were, were, had, had rights. These slaves had, they could buy property. They can get married. They can get educated. Nonetheless, they were slaves. And the life of a slave was difficult. And notice here, in verse 9, that Paul, 9 and 10, Paul doesn't address the condition of slavery. Rather, he simply acknowledges that it exists and deals rather with the attitude of the Christian bond slave and what they should have. So for the great many of you who are employees, this will be of relevance to you. Titus is to urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters, meaning The slave, again, willingly places themselves under their master in everything. That means, employee, you may not like the decisions or the direction that your manager or boss is going. However, as long as you are not being commanded to sin, you are to be well-pleasing. You work hard. You're not argumentative. Oh, this is hard. It's hard to not be argumentative. You know, this doesn't mean that you can't offer ideas or have discussion 
Rather, this word means that you're speaking against in the sense of you mouth off. You're mouthing off. Being argumentative is the opposite of being submissive and well-pleasing. You are to show honesty by not pilfering, stealing time, resources, office supplies. Don't be these things, but rather, Paul says, show all good faith. And in this context, it means to be faithful to the job you were hired to do. You're trustworthy. You're reliable. You're dependable, whether or not the boss is there. And unfortunately, this kind of employee today is hard to find, isn't it? So much rude customer service, lazy, entitled employees that every once in a while you see someone working hard. They're nice. They're kind. They're smiling. And at that moment, I truly think, I think they're a Christian. That person may be a Christian because the way they are, it's so distinct distinct from everyone else who's moving at a snail's pace. It really could care less about being at work. And so we've gleaned through this passage is what it is we are to say, how it is we are to live, and very briefly, our last point, why it matters. Why it matters, this passage plugs in three purpose clauses that summarize for us why it's so important that sound doctrine is accompanied by sound living. And the first one is at the end of verse 5. It says there, after the encouragement to the older women and younger, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So the way you live, not what you know, the way you live, by the way you live, will either honor the word of God or dishonor it. You know, the testimony of a transformed life is of such power. First Peter tells us that as wives live out sound doctrine, their behavior can win a disobedient husband without even a word. Second one, purpose clause can be found at the end of verse 8. It says, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Godly behavior as outlined in verses 2 to 7. When that's lived out, it puts opponents to shame. When someone anyone makes an accusation or says something demeaning about a Christian, that Christian's behavior is such that it refutes it. That's silly. Christ, the embodiment of this, people had to literally make things up. People had to literally lie in order to try and get something on him. And of course, we know that they did. And the last purpose clause there is at the end of verse 10. says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. How vital your testimony is, dear church, at work, in front of a watching world. Living out sound doctrine will make the gospel attractive to the unbelievers around you, including your boss. And adorn has the idea of arranging jewelry so that the beauty of the jewels are best displayed. You know what makes the church attractive to those who don't know Christ? is your holiness. Your holiness, your workplace is a mission field. Paul has entrusted you, employees, to live out the gospel in such a way that it is appealing. Oh, Christ, your church is his own attraction. We don't need to add anything to Christ. We don't need to add anything to the message. It's perfect the way it is. But by the way we work, we can smear it. We can tarnish it. Oh, but by the grace of God, and by the help of the Spirit, may we live in the ways that He has prescribed for us, that the Christ preached in this place 
lives and he changes lives and me, you are living proofs of that. This is our calling, dear church. As we speak sound doctrine, as we manifest sound living, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Opponents put to shame and Christ, his church, be adorned. Let's pray. Lord, your word is clear. This is how we are to live. And I pray, God, that if we are convicted in ways that only you know, oh God, may we seek you for help. Younger men, younger women, may may they seek out those who are older. And older men and older women, may they be indicative of a life lived out because of sound doctrine and what what it has done to transform their hearts. Oh, if we are to be a healthy church, this is how we are to live. Oh, and if need be, God, may we confess our sin to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us. Oh, if need be, God, may we be intentional in ways we weren't before. For your glory. In Christ's name, amen.